Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, welcome back. What if nature actually wanted us to be fat? What if nature had a driver for wanting us to store fat? And what if that switch is an actual switch that can be switched on and off? And if we could figure out how to switch it on and off, could this hold part of the key to solving both obesity and diabetes and metabolic diseases and gout and pretty much every other chronic disease that are seems to be endemic in our society. So my guest today is Dr. Richard Johnson, and he's written his latest book is called Why Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. His two previous books were The Sugar Fix, and the one before that was The Fat Switch. So clearly, Dr. Johnson is pretty focused on solving this puzzle, or at least working towards a solution of this puzzle, puzzle that is driving human obesity, metabolic disorders, type 2 diabetes, gout, cardiovascular disease, you name it. So who is Dr. Johnson? He is a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado and a practicing physician. He's been a medical scientist for over 25 years, and he is internationally recognized for seminal work on the role of sugar and its component fructose. And I will give you a hint about the episode. It's fructose is central to this issue in obesity and diabetes. His work has also suggested a fundamental role for uric acid, which has gotten a lot of attention lately, which is generated during fructose metabolism in metabolic syndrome. So Dr. Johnson, as you can imagine, is a prolific scientist. He's published over 700 papers and his work has been very highly cited. And he is a great guest. He's a great speaker. He's very passionate about his topic. And he's was just a joy to chat with today. So if you get value from this episode, and if you know of anyone else who might get value from of this information, please make sure that you share this episode with your network, with your friends, with anybody you think of who can get value from this episode as well. And of course, if you enjoy it, make sure that you leave us a review because this is how we get seen. If you're looking to connect with Dr. Johnson, you can find him at drrichardjohnson.com and the correct spelling of his last name will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for being here. Totally appreciate you guys and enjoy the episode. Hey folks, just a little bit of housekeeping before we launch into the episode. Please remember that all of the information provided in these podcasts is for information purposes only. We are never offering treatments, cures, whatever, for any kind of disease or medical condition. Anything you hear about here is going to be intriguing. There's some research around it, but make sure that you check with your medical provider before you go off and do any of this stuff for yourself. All right. Enjoy the episode. And also, if you're looking to connect with me for any reason, with your comments, questions, whatever it may be, you can reach me through my website, which is natnidham.com, or you can find me on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group, or on MeWe in the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Group. And of course, you can also follow me on Instagram, which is at Natalie Nidham. Natalie is with an H between the T and the a, the second day. So thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you guys. Enjoy the episode. Hey folks, 
Quick thank you to our sponsor this episode, Bioptimizers, who have just released their fourth generation formula of magnesium breakthrough. It is now even more potent because it now includes cofactors, vitamin B6 and manganese that support the absorption of magnesium. And why is magnesium so important? Well, it's involved in 80% of the body's metabolic reactions and 75% of people are not getting enough magnesium. Every bottle of Magnesium Breakthrough will provide you with seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium, which can dramatically improve your health by helping you to sleep longer and deeper, by helping to reduce stress levels and helping you to feel calm, and by giving you abundant all-day energy to win at life. All one has to do is take two capsules before you go to bed, and you will be amazed by the improvements in your mood and energy levels. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magnesiumbreakthrough.com forward slash Bionat and use Bionat 10 at checkout to save 10%. And one last thing, if you want your loved ones to be healthier, consider giving them the gift of Magnesium Breakthrough for Mother's Day, Father's Day, or even a spring birthday. And now let's get back to the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Richard Johnson. It is such a pleasure to meet you. Natalie, the very same. Yes. Well, you know, as, as my listeners know, um, I always have a podcast discussion with my podcast guests before the podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we are, we actually met 20 minutes ago, but I've been devouring your book for the last little short while, actually, because I, I, as I admitted to Dr. Johnson, I kind of might, I may or may not have lost it in a pile of other books. And I finally dug it up the other day. And so I've just been plowing through it and loving, loving this book. So Thank you so much for agreeing to join me today. And I think that before, although we're going to keep this nice and tight, um, I, before we really, we really get into the topic, which is so fascinating, what I'd love is if you might share with people how you came to this. Like, what's your, you know, give us the three-minute version of Richard Johnson's trail to this particular topic. Okay, so I'm a physician. Um, I went to medical school. I was very interested in research. My father was in academic medicine. I really early on realized that I was uh, that I loved treating patients and managing them, but I was much more interested in why they got their diseases than in treating their diseases. So early on, I became very interested. I went on to become a kidney specialist and also studied infectious disease, internal medicine. I'm just um, a very curious guy. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I began and became interested in what causes high blood pressure. And there was a relationship of high blood pressure to the kidneys. So I studied that and kind of came up with a mechanism for what causes high blood pressure, which I'm pleased to tell you is currently one of the main theories for what causes high blood pressure, which is uh, that yeah, it's an inflammation in the kidney that, um, causes the arteries, the blood vessels in the kidney to constrict, and that keeps the kidney from excreting salt adequately. So that um, the question is what drive, drove that inflammation? And we've linked it with a substance called uric acid. And the, the uric acid is something that's in our blood. Uh, and it varies quite a bit with diet. It turns out that sugar is a major way to raise it. So I said, <laughs> I said okay, if uric acid, if inflammation is causing high blood pressure, and uric acid is causing the inflammation, what's causing the uric acid? And it took me to sugar. And suddenly I was outside the kidney and studying sugar 
this was like 20 years ago, and our work focused on a component of sugar called fructose. So sugar, a table sugar, consists of glucose and fructose, and they're bound together. And it turns out that it's the fructose that actually is responsible for raising the uric acid and for causing the inflammation. And then we started studying fructose and we realized that we had found a nutrient that actually makes you suddenly lose your ability to control your weight and makes you want to gain weight. And then we started realizing it was used in nature. And that's how animals in nature, a lot of them gain weight, like before they hibernate. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we realized that it was more than just gaining weight, that fructose activated a whole, a whole survival mechanism. And it included insulin resistance and all these different things they do, foraging, um, blood pressure goes up as part of this story. Um, and we realized that this was a survival pathway that animals use to survive when there's no food around or to help prepare them for when there's no food around. Yeah. And then once we figured that it was a big, big survival type switch, then we went into a deep dive to try to figure out why it is that fructose does this and other nutrients don't. And then in that process, we discovered <laughs> that there were other foods besides fructose that could activate this switch, but they did it, interestingly enough, by making you make fructose in your body. So it's still pretty much fructose dependent. And so then we realized that this was a really big story and then we started studying that and we found out that it was involved in not just obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure, but it was also involved in diseases like Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. cancer. And so the whole story began with a simple question, you know, what's causing high blood pressure and why is the kidney involved? And they ended up with uh, identifying pathways by which foods we eat are driving a lot of the current diseases of today. So um, it's been an unbelievable story. I'm super lucky that I stumbled on it. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like finding a gold coin. Mm -hmm. And you dig it around, you find another gold coin, and then suddenly you, your shell goes up against something hard and you realize that you found a chest, a treasure chest. Yeah. And uh, honest to God, uh, in terms of science, uh, this was sort of what it was like. And we've we published in very good journals and I, you know, became apparent to me that I needed to tell the story to the, to the general person, to the reader, um, because it came with a lot of surprises for how to treat it too. So there's ways to, to block this switch. There's ways to turn it into something healthy. Um, there's, there's all kinds of tricks that came out of understanding how it works. So that's the story. And, uh, <laughs> I, I think I went over three minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, no. And, and you know what? You kind of encapsulated a lot about what we're going to talk about today. So I want to go back and fill in the gaps for people. But that was actually a brilliant summary of, of where you're at right now. And I think that, you know, identifying this biological switch that drives obesity, which is ultimately... What, what, one of the things that I love about the book, and I was just telling you this, is how you're able in this book to go back and look at a lot of these 
physical conditions that we identify as being really negative. So be it insulin resistance or high blood pressure or fatty liver disease or any of it, or the storage, the physical storage of fat. And when you reframe it in an evolutionary context, they're not bad. These are actually survival mechanisms that help us to deal with dehydration or, or lack of food or whatever the case may be. And you make some, you know, you draw very compelling parallels to nature, like the frog that lives in the desert and has these these fat pads on his toes that, because we're able to convert fat into water, which is one of, which is interesting because, you know, we, we hear, or certainly I've come across groups of people that believe in dry fasting. And so these are people who very often are carrying a lot of excess weight and they're essentially pushing their body to go after that fat, which releases the water that they need, which means that that whole kind of myth that we're fed that says you can't survive more than four days without water, unless, of course, you're super lean, in which case it's true, is not true. So maybe we want to just. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, yes. So, so th- this survival plan was turned on to be an insurance plan. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like. Um, if you have some fat, you can use that as an energy source when you, when you, when you, there's no food around. And actually every time everyone does intermittent fasting or, or, or any type of fasting, what, what's happening is they're switching over to um, using the fat they have as their energy source, as opposed to the food. So what happens is the, the uh, fat, when it's broken down, it generates energy. So when we eat food, we're making, instant energy, which we call ATP, or we're making stored energy, which we can call fat. And what fructose does is it shifts more of the energy towards fat than to instant energy. So our our instant energy levels are low and that makes us hungry. So we eat more. It also makes us a little more uh, tired. Our resting energy metabolism falls. And and so what happens is we eat more, but we've triggered this thing so more of the energy is going to fat than to the immediate energy and so that's how this this system works and then when you get that fat um, it's supposed to be there to help you survive when there's no food around so it's interesting natalie that there are that studies show that you know like if you have cancer if you have heart disease or if you're sick or if you're over 70 years old you actually live longer if you have a little extra fat. Yeah. And um, and in fact, you know, we always say that the ideal BMI is 20 to 25 because then you can look great on the beach and you do. Uh, but but uh, the people who live the longest at age 70 are those who have a BMI of like 26 or 27. So being mildly overweight is associated with the ability to live longer. And it's partly because when... When you get an illness, like if you get COVID or something like that, you have a mild increase in fat storage. It's good. Now, if you have a large increase in fat Mm -hmm. storage so that the fat is pushing on your lung and you can't expand your lung, then COVID could kill you, right? Because uh, you you don't have uh, um, as much lung reserve. Um, But if you have just mild increases in fat, like a BMI of 26 or 27, you actually live longer. Um, and, and, um, but having said that, I think all of us would prefer to have a BMI of 20 to 25. Um, you feel better, your energy's maybe a little higher. So, 
but yeah. Um, yeah, although at 26 to 27, you're talking about a bit of a sweet spot, right? Because it, you know, it, it doesn't take long. Once you hit 28, 29, 30, we're now getting into the zone of uncomfortable. Yeah. And and we also, you know, if we can be 20, BMI at 26, 27 with an absence of inflammation, which is, you know, or right. in an absence of these other markers of, right. of d- disease or, or imbalance, if you will, that's right. a very different 26 to 27 yeah. than, than yeah. the 26 to 27 that's accompanied. Oh, you're totally right. And I, I actually am a big believer, uh, you know, shooting for that 20 to 25, even though uh, in my book, I, I quote the papers and we talk about it. And, and certainly if we were in a world where there was a lot of illnesses, um, I mean, like during the COVID world times, I mean, a BMI of 26 probably is better. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, uh, now, you know, the, it's, I, I don't think that the, uh, you know, or if you like have cancer, maybe a BMI of 26 is better, but, um, if, if for the regular person, I think, uh, we should be shooting for 20 to 25. Yeah. And that way, if you miss, you hit 26, it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, so that the other point you made is that, you know, you know, when we were studying animals in the wild, uh, you know, we realized that fat was not just a source of energy, that fat is a source of water and that um, camels and animals in the desert, they use fat to help them make water. And like the frog that has the, high, uh, the big pads, he can, he can survive for five years under the sand. Yeah. And, and they, 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 he also, uh, or she or whatever, they, they get, um, <laughs> gulp a lot of water that they hold in their bladders too. So they actually have, um, they're, they're holding on to water as well as fat. And they use the fat as both energy and water source because they're in the desert and they can live for five years without water. Yeah. There's even one report said that maybe they can live 10 years. Well, and, and then uh, unless they get discovered by those people that dig them up and squish the water yeah, out of them, which really yeah, seems so like, mean. <laughs> I, I have a picture of that. Yeah, uh, from the 1930s of these um, of the Tiwi, where they're digging up these uh, these frogs and then drinking them, drinking the water from them. They squeeze it over their mouths. Yeah. Um, anyway, so anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and then some animals put fro- uh, fat in their tails, like in the desert, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like the, um, because that way it doesn't cause insulation, raise their body temp. And uh, there's even a primate called a dwarf fat-tailed lemur, or maybe it's the fat-tailed dwarf lemur, but, some, but it's some, a lemur. Some combination of those words, yeah. yeah. some combination of those words. And, and this little guy um, will live off the fat in its tail for mainly for the water during the dry season. Um, and he'll just kind of hibernate in the hollow of a tree. So this brings us to the idea that fat, we may hold on to fat. And this, you know, it's so interesting when we get into the, the discussion about hydration and, and weight gain or, or fat gain, right? Where somehow the body believes that it needs to hang on to this fat because there's not enough water around because we're dehydrated. And so it's, it can't wait for a rainy day because that's not coming. So clearly it needs to hang on to what it's got to, to preserve itself. But, but I want to go back to the foods that activate this survival switch, because what you identify in the book is that as humans, we, we share this survival switch, which kind of makes sense with, with animals. And so, 
you know, what's happened is our environment has completely turned against us because we're inadvertently triggering the switch and and causing ourselves to live in a space where we don't, we're unhealthy because of. Got it. So, so in terms of the food, so in nature, the animals, a lot of animals will use um, fructose that's present in nature. And that's in fruit and honey and things that we think of as healthy, but they eat huge amounts. Mm-hmm. So the bear, the bear will eat like 10 or 20,000 grapes in a 24 hour period. So, I mean, it's a, a different magnitude of sugar. And, and so they're eating so much of these berries and grapes and fruits that they get a large dose of fructose. When we eat a fruit, we're getting like four or five grams to eight grams of, of fructose per fruit. We usually don't eat multiple fruit at the same time. And so when we, some do, but <laughs> if you eat like one or two fruits, you're not going to get that much fructose. And it turns out the intestine kind of inactivates the first five grams so if you, 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 you kind of benefit with that. So but you get a buy. <laughs> if you eat a ton of fruit at the same time, you could activate the switch too. And we do that when we drink fruit juices, because that's when we, we uh, you know, put multiple fruit into a blender and, and, and then we drink it fast. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it turns out that the, uh, for us, it's not really the natural fruit that's activating the switch. If anything, the natural fruit we're eating tends to be more tart, have lower fructose content. It's filled with good things like vitamin C and things that can actually kind of neutralize the switch. So, but where we get our fructose is mainly from added sugar. So things like table sugar, sugar comes from sugar cane and sugar beets, what we would call sucrose, which is the disaccharide. It's a it's a sugar that has fructose and glucose bound together. It's table sugar. That is a major mechanism. And we went from eating about four pounds a year in 1700 to about 150 pounds a year. And, and, uh, and then there's this high fructose corn syrup. And that's uh, also kind of like table sugar, except it's liquid. And the fructose and glucose are free. They're not bound together. And and you can get a lot of fructose from high fructose corn syrup, and that's added to a lot of processed foods. And so uh, this tr- it turns out that some people are eating 25% of their diet is sugar. And, yeah. and when you're eating that, that's half of that is fructose. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. a large amount. And the average person is eating about 15% of their diet is sugar, 15 to 17%. So... We're eating a lot of sugar and high fructose corn syrup. And that's the main thing that triggers this switch. But originally I was thinking it was just that. And then we discovered that the body can make fructose. This was really a disappointment. And um, uh, in the main way it makes it is it makes it from glucose. So if you're eating a lot of glucose or foods that release glucose, they can make uh, fructose too. And, and it turns out that's what French fries, you know, uh, starch, you know, potatoes, rice, uh, cereal, um, bread. Oh my God. I love bread. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, I loved fresh bread. I, I, I came from a place where in my family, we never had fresh bread. And one day when I was in college, I went to a bakery and I just fell in love with hot bread, hot, fresh bread. And then I would get that instead of a cake for my birthday, you know? And, um, and so it was such a disappointment to learn that bread 
gets converted to fructose in the body. And, um, and so it's not just stimulating insulin, it's actually converting to fructose. And that's, it turns out that when you're first, in your early life, you don't convert it so well. Uh, you, you actually have to turn on this, this system that converts it. So in the beginning, we're kind of immune to the effects of sugar and fructose uh, and breads because uh, the systems to absorb fructose and to, and to make fructose are all kind of, uh, it begin uh, kind of naive, you know, they're, they're not that active, but the more sugar you eat, the more you upregulate the pathway. If you give little children fruit juice, they activate this pathway over time. And, you know, it's uh, very much linked with the development of obesity. So, so glucose, uh, high glycemic carbs, what we call it. Yeah. So would you say that it's the, the, one of the problems with high glycemic foods is that big hit of glucose over and over again, like those big sugar yes. spikes that you see, that's the yes. real assault and essentially on the liver that can trigger that survival switch. Absolutely correct. That's exactly how it works. And when you eat these foods, you know, they release glucose rapidly. So it goes up in your blood. But the foods go, everything you eat goes through the liver before it gets to the blood. So the liver sees that high glucose too. And it's in the liver where the fructose is really acting. So the glucose gets converted to the fructose in the liver. And then that just starts it all off. And, and that high glucose also causes fructose to be made in other sites, like in the brain. Mm-hmm. And there's some data that, you know, as you probably know, that diabetes and and uh, high glycemic foods are associated with Alzheimer's. And it's because in the brain, this glucose is being converted to fructose. And we, there's increasing evidence that that's the underlying mechanism that initiates the process towards Alzheimer's. We can talk about that more. Yeah, I would love to. But before we do that, can you maybe take the audience through a little bit how fructose is so harmful in the body? You you describe it beautifully in the book where you talk about the conversion to uric acid. You talk about the energy pathway, which depletes energy out of the system, leaving people. I mean, it ends up leaving people depleted and looking for more food, more calories kind of thing. So all nutrients are used to make energy, and we we can make that energy as ATP, as I mentioned before, or as stored energy, like which is fat. So when you eat any food, it's being turned into energy, and the same thing's true with fructose. But fructose um, does a trick. It's a, it's a true trick. When fructose is metabolized, it activates an unusual pathway that leads to the production of uric acid. And uric acid is this breakdown product. It's a breakdown product of DNA. It's a breakdown product of ATP. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when you when you eat fructose, uh, you consume a little ATP when you're first metabolizing that fructose. And it causes a, a unique reaction that's specific to fructose that triggers the degradation of ATP. And the ATP is broken down to uric acid. And once it's turned to uric acid, it's very hard to make ATP back because the the uric acid has removed some of the things that are needed to make the new ATP. But even more so, the uric acid works on the mitochondria. And the mitochondria are the energy factories in the cell that make ATP. So most of our energy comes from our mitochondria. And if we don't have mitochondria, we would be slugs. 
There's another mechanism to make ATP, but it's a primitive system. And the, the mitochondria, they, they use oxygen to make a lot of ATP. What the uric acid does is it stuns the mitochondria and it makes the mitochondria make less ATP. As part of that, the mitochondria will use less oxygen because they've been stunned. Remember, the mitochondria use oxygen to make ATP. Mm-hmm. So actually, the when you activate this process, you make less ATP and you also consume less oxygen. So it's also a, a, a way that animals, when they get into a low oxygen setting, they start making fructose because what that does is it makes the uric acid and it makes the mitochondria use less oxygen. So you make less ATP. So you're making less ATP and you're in Instead, you're making that energy as fat. So it's shunting it to fat. But what it's doing is it's reducing your oxygen demand. So it's actually a, a thing that like uh, animals that burrow, like yeah. a naked mole rat that goes into these burrows in Africa. And they, those burrows, if you're a mouse, you can't, you, you couldn't live down there because um, uh, it gets so, the oxygen content gets so low that you die. But these Naked mole rats will make fructose, and the fructose will stun the mitochondria, make the oxygen needs less, so they can live in an anaerobic environment. Instead, they make their their ATP from that primitive system called glycolysis. So it's a primitive energy production. And so so it's actually supposed to, it's like a survival mechanism even there. But what's happening is it reduces those mitochondria from making ATP. And so our energy goes down, our resting energy metabolism falls in particular. So we, we're, we're sitting in the, instead of, when we're sitting on the couch, we're really sitting on the couch. <laughs> you're, you're like, uh, you're, you're like not moving much. You're, you're you know, you're, you're not even twitching. <laughs> well, you're but conserving energy, right? You're, you're conserving energy because, and you're using less oxygen because your mitochondria are stunned. And, and so what happens is the way fructose works is it suppresses the mitochondria, which is making all the energy that we need to think and do all these things. And it's trying to do it to kind of protect you because it thinks that you, there's not enough food around. So we're going to suppress everything. The trouble is, is that it's great if you do that for a few minutes, uh, but you don't want to be doing this all the time because what happens is we start making less, the mitochondria start getting hit. Again, it, the way it, it stuns the mitochondria, it's, it causes oxidative stress to the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's causing low-grade damage to the mitochondria. And so initially, you know, it's fine. It's, it suppresses it. Everything's fine because everything comes back up to normal. But but over years and years, those mitochondria are taking a beating. And over time, you get what we call aging because the mitochondria start to get less and less. We get slower. Our energy is not working well. And in the brain, it has a very bad effect because the this backup system called glycolysis isn't very good in the brain. And so what happens is the neurons start to die. Um, and it's particularly in certain regions of the brain. And th- those are the areas where Alzheimer's develops. And mm-hmm. so um, it's, it's an amazing story. And now people are finding high fructose levels in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. And they can show evidence of all these pathways that fructose does before the 
uh, patients get frank Alzheimer's. So it turns out that it's really looking very likely that this is a major mechanism. And all the things that can activate and, and increase the risk for Alzheimer's are, 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 can occur with these foods that you know, lead to either eating fructose or making fructose. Right. And one of the things that you talk about also, because, you know, I think what's, what's interesting is, okay, people are sitting there listening. Okay. Fructose that's sugar and that's sugar from fruit. Fruit's bad. If we eat too much of it, like you made a good point that, you know, an apple a day is not going to drive, it's not going to drive this mechanism, but sitting there with a giant bowl of grapes or a giant bowl of cherries and making that your, because people, still yes. walk around thinking, you know, this is fruit, so I'm good. I can eat as much as I want. Right. Um, yeah, or, do yeah, or even worse, fruit juice, and then compounding it with the, the sodas and the high fructose corn syrup, it's yeah. now overwhelming the system, yeah. right? Right. So uh, let me just talk a little bit more about fruits because natural fruits, um, when we get a natural fruit, it has fiber, mm -hmm. which slows the absorption of the sugar. Um, and it has things like um, vitamin C, which we've shown can actually block some of the effects of this pathway. Yeah, that was actually a great point in the book, the 500 milligrams a day. So it turns out that when, in, when a fruit's tart, it actually has all these things that kind of block the effects of sugar. And animals prefer to eat the fruit when it's ripe. And the reason is, is because it's, it gets ripe, the fructose content goes up. When a fruit ripens, it gets sweeter. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the vitamin C content falls. And, and the plant actually, if the plant could think, it would actually want this, right? Because yeah. um, as the fruit matures, so that the seeds mature, so that, that um, it, it, it can make a new plant. So it wants the fruit to be eaten when it's ripe. And that's when the fruit falls to the ground. The plants, I mean, the animals will eat it. They'll then disperse the seeds in their poop. And that will help um, the, the growth of new fruit trees. Mm -hmm. So it's actually all kind of orchestrated to help the animals gain weight. And they seek out the fruit when the seeds are mature, which is good for the, for the plant. So we call it a symbiotic relationship, something that benefits both the plant and the animal. And uh, so, so anyway, so that natural fruits, we actually did a study where we took people who are overweight and we put them on a low sugar diet uh, with or without fruit supplements. Um, and so the, the one group was, it was a low fructose diet. So they couldn't eat any fructose really, but one group got natural fruits given back to them. And the both groups uh, imp improved dramatically, but actually the, when you had natural fruits there, it was better tolerated that people liked the diet more. And, um, and actually it, it had the same benefit, maybe even a little better benefit than without fruit. So I, I actually am convinced that natural fruits are good so long as you don't overdo it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I definitely have had people overdo it where they're eating so many fruits that, that they are having trouble. Um, they're activating the switch. I was going to say that, you know, we've cultivated fruit that is a lot sweeter than it would have been. Yes, yes, we have to be a little careful. Uh, you know, the other thing is, um, the other big discovery, well, I mean, there are quite a few, but um, when we realized that fat was being used as a source of water by animals, we began to realize that, you know, if you were dehydrated, that might 
make you want to put on fat because if you're mildly dehydrated, um, you would probably want to accumulate fat. And so it turns out that people who are overweight are almost always mildly dehydrated. And I don't know if you know, know this. I, it's yeah. sort of surprising, but um, there have been studies that show that people who are overweight or obese tend to be, um, you know, one, one study showed that they were 12 times more likely to be dehydrated than a lean person. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. And then the question is, well, how do you get dehydrated? What's making them dehydrated? And part of it is they're not drinking enough water. So it turns out that if you're not drinking enough water, that's a risk factor to become obese. But if you, you could still be drinking water, but you can make yourself dehydrated by eating salty food. Yeah. So, so this was the other food. piece of it. Yeah. 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 So it turns out that when you're dehydrated, we often call it because you're losing water somehow. For example, like vomiting, diarrhea, sweating, mm. you're losing water. So you get dehydrated. So your the water in your body is actually low, but you can, you can main, you can increase the water in your blood by eating a lot of salt. So when you eat a lot of salt, uh, it makes you thirsty. And so then you drink more water because of that, and you, it's not because you've lost water, it's because you've gained salt that that makes you gain water. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that when you eat salt, um, you actually, it's a kind of a way to hold on to water. But what's really interesting is that when you eat salt, it activates that switch to make fructose. And so it turns out that salt is another stimulus for making fructose in the body. And the reason is, is then the fructose helps helps you store fat as a source of water so this it's another way to help you drive um, to help correct for thirst by storing up water so when you eat salt you become thirsty but then you're drinking water but you also start making fat to to help you preserve it survive so salt licks and in, in the that animals find are probably there to help them uh, store fat, which they often need. Yeah. Um, many of them are eating poor quality food that doesn't have a lot of nutrition. And so they can, they, if they activate a system that helps them make fructose, then what will happen is they can store fat better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're making that fructose from glucose. You're not making it from the salt. So the salt is activating the system, which I call the polyol system, that helps convert glucose to fructose. That's why French fries are so bad. I was just, that, <laughs> <laughs> you, got the, you got the potato, which is your starch. That's pure glucose. You put salt on it, a little bit of grease and stuff to make it really taste good. And it does taste great. And what's happening is the salt is like the fire that turns on the enzyme to help convert that starch to, to fructose. But you forgot one piece. You forgot the cat. You forgot the ketchup. Yes, the ketchup, which, which itself is a source of fructose. Like, I, if you exactly. think about it, I was I had just written this down to say, like, French fries are the perfect. They're, yes. they're the perfect food to get obese on because you've got, to your point, yes. you've got the starch from the potatoes. You've got the, the unhealthy fats, which we know are bad in a million different ways. You've got a ton of salt because what's French fries without salt? Like. You know, it's like the, the French fry that fun forgot. And then you dump them into you dunk them into whether it's gravy, which is also probably full of sugar and ketchup. And, you know, you're, you're 
boom. <laughs> yeah, boom. Yeah, you know, so so this is why the low-carb diets are so beneficial because not only are they removing sugar, but they're also removing these high glycemic carbs. And so even if you eat, if you eat salt, but you are on a low-carb diet, you don't have as much glucose to convert to fructose because you're mm-hmm. getting, you know, you've, you're restricting carbs. So you're getting less glucose in your diet. You're still making some glucose from proteins and stuff. Um, but most of the glucose we get is from our starches and stuff. So when you remove that, then what's happening is this, uh, the salt isn't as uh, capable of, of inducing obesity. So a low carb or a keto diet is a great way to help turn off this switch because, uh, you know, it basically removes the glucose that's used to make fructose. And it also reduces the fructose because they're both carbs. Right. Um, you still, you still make some carbs though, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, but you really, this is a great way to really reduce the switch. Another is just to try to cut back on salt and drink more water. Just a quick minute to thank our sponsor this episode, Drink HRW, who make rejuvenation molecular hydrogen tablets. They deliver 10 parts per million of hydrogen in 500 milliliters of water directly to your cells. This is the highest concentration of hydrogen of any other brand. I personally choose this product for a number of reasons, but the first is that this company actually invests in research. To date, they've invested in 13 human clinical trials with more to come. So why is hydrogen important in the first place? Well, the list of benefits of molecular hydrogen includes enhanced alertness, reduction in liver fat, improved aerobic fitness, improved muscle recovery, and there was also a study on metabolic health in humans that showed that drink HRW tablets improved 18 of 20 metabolic markers. I use molecular hydrogen first thing in the morning, and I will often use it mid-afternoon if I need a bit of a pick-me-up. So if you'd like to try molecular hydrogen rejuvenation tablets for yourself, just go to drinkhrw.com forward slash superhuman and use discount code longevity to save 15% off your purchase. And now let's get back to the episode. Well, because keto diets can be quite high in salt and you know, we've all seen keto diets backfire on people. I don't, I think that, you know, you get these dirty keto diets as they're called, which are full of processed foods and And a lot of people will say, well, what's wrong with a keto diet? You know, my carbs are still super low and my fat super high. And it's, you know, we, we try to oversimplify things as much as possible. And we forget that the devil is in the details when it comes to our bodies and nutrition and, you know, eating a bunch of processed, you know, eating a bunch of processed food and people on a keto diet are told they need more salt, which they kind of do, but you know, to pound the salt with reckless abandon. And, you know, what, what I've been learning, you know, originally when we were beginning, people were just talking about it as calories or, you know, it's calories that count. Yeah. And then we realized that it was not just calories. It's like, it makes a difference if it's protein or carbohydrate or, or fat. And then we've been learning that it's actually types of fat and types of protein Mm -hmm. and types of carbs and and now we're getting uh, we're getting to even a newer rule, which is how you eat it can make a difference. And and I'll give you an example. The way this switch works, it relates to the concentration of fructose that gets to the liver. So the higher the concentration, the bigger the activation of the switch. Right. It's like a dimmer. 
it's like a dimmer. So if you hit it with a lot of fructose very quickly, it's turned on full blast and you're like trying to make fat. But if you activate it slightly, then, you know, it's like only half up the dial. So it turns out that if you um, eat, if you had a soft drink and you drank it fast, you'd get a huge amount of fructose in a very short time. And so it would flood the liver and you'd get this big activation. And even though it's a huge amount of fructose, if you drank it really slowly, like you had a Coke and you sipped it all day long and it took you like four hours to drink it because you were just sipping here and there, it would just be a calorie. It would not activate the switch. Because yeah. the concentration that gets to the liver would be very low because you're you're eating it, drinking it so slowly that only a tiny bit is coming in. Or here's another thing. If you drank a soft drink on an empty stomach, it's going to be really bad. But if you drank it in, with all kinds of other foods that are going to slow the absorption and fiber, it's, it's still going to be bad. But yeah, it's uh, not going. <laughs> I'm not trying to recommend. No, because you do make the point in the book. Sport. Yeah, you do make the point in the book that sugar plus fat is is the easiest way to drive obesity in animals, and like yes. a high sugar plus a high fat diet together is is one of the surefire ways to dr- to make animals obese. But but I wanted to ask you about something else. Did you have you looked at all at resistant starch? I've seen some studies. They look, it looks really promising as a Mm -hmm. good way to go. So resistant starch is um, starch that does not break down very quickly. And uh, so it has that benefit where it doesn't make the glucose go up in the blood. And so it turns out that the way fructose is made, it really is triggered by a rise in glucose above what's normal. So if you your glucose level is uh, normal is like 80 to 100 in our in our body. And as far as we can tell, there's very little fructose being made between 80 and 100. Interesting. There may be some, though. It, mm-hmm. it may turn out that this is important in aging, even for people who are doing everything right. But 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 it looks like from 80 to 100, there's very not much fructose made. Once you get to like 120, 100 to 120, there's probably not much either. It's maybe a tiny bit. But once you've got to like one 130, which often you can hit if you're eating like a potato, your postprandial or your glucose level after you eat can maybe hit 130, 140, 150. That definitely triggers it. And of course, if you eat a small amount of glucose, but you eat salt with it, you know, like a French fry, you don't necessarily have to get the glucose up. So because the enzymes turned on um, big time. But anyway, so yes, you're totally right. Um, it probably the glucose level makes a difference and resistant starch tends not to raise that. So it should be a much safer food. And I've seen some data that suggests that's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, and it, it gets metabolized. I mean, to your point, it gets metabolized by the body quite differently. So there's one more food category I want to touch on. And then I really want us in our remaining time to talk about some of the disease connections you've made 
with cancer, with heart attack. Like, I think that's a really, really great yeah. discussion. But the final category of food, and I think this is probably the biggest disappointment when you're reading the book, you're like, come on. And that's umami, foods with umami. And, yeah. and it all is predicated on this content of glutamate that also feeds into, in a different way, feeds into this cycle of driving, I think it's uric acid production, right? It, so it turns out we have five tastes. Two of them we talked about sweet and salty, two are sour and bitter. The sour and bitter developed to try to help us avoid foods that probably could be poisonous or things like this. But the sweet and salty right, were developed to help us find these foods just for this purpose of putting on weight. Okay, and, and um, if, if you knock out the taste and you still give sugar, animals will still love sugar. So it's not the taste that drives the sugar. The taste is there to help you find the foods that are sweet. And the body wants us to eat this. Nature wants us to eat foods that are going to help put on fat for us. Because in our past, survival was key. Yeah. Not so much now because we, food is available all the time. Mm-hmm. So the fifth taste is umami, and we call it the savory flavor. And it's, uh, you know, when you age or cure foods, um, it uh, can release uh, an amino acid called glutamate. Uh, and you can get glutamate in like uh, tomatoes too, like the, the Bloody Mary uh, has a fair amount of glutamate. Um, and, uh, and glutamate's also present in yeast. Yeah, so like uh, yeast extracts are used in beer. So one of the reasons beer tastes so good is because the beer, the brewer's yeast contains a lot of glutamate and other substances called IMP and AMP. They're, they're nucleotides and they also play a role in these flavors. So, so people make MSG mm-hmm. or monosodium glutamate and they add it to foods because it makes the savory taste. And, a lot of Chinese restaurants have a lot of glutamate and a lot of Asian foods have a lot of glutamate. Unfortunately, no one really understood why this was, right? And so we started studying this and we realized that uh, glutamate actually gets broken down into uric acid. And when you give glutamate to an animal, especially in the drinking water, it'll become incredibly fat very quickly. Now, the, the difference is you say, well, uh, there actually were studies showing this before us, but what we found is that glutamate is a really potent stimulus and that it works through the same pathway that fructose does. It just, um, remember fructose makes uric acid? Yeah. So glutamate makes uric acid. And so it's another route to that path. And then the uric acid suppresses the mitochondria and that whole bit and activates the switch. So glutamate activates the switch too. And it turns out that these other substances that people add that are part of the umami taste are actually part of that very, that exact pathway that makes obesity that we, we fell upon. And so uh, the good news, <laughs> Natalie, <laughs> and, and this is probably why animals start, you know, seek bone marrow because it's very rich in glutamate and these things that can drive food, the, the, um, this, the, you know, that can help put on fat. And it's also uh, why certain foods like uh, shellfish and liver um, um, are so tasty and, and shrimp and lobster because they tend to be rich in these purine, we sometimes call them purine rich foods, but it's basically foods that are umami. 
Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're really the same. Now, the good news, <laughs> there is some good news here. Mm-hmm. The good news is that it takes a, a lot of umami foods to be the equivalent of what the sugar we're eating. So we're okay. eating like 75 grams of sugar a day. And we're eating like two grams of, of glutamate a day. Yeah. And although one gram of glutamate is stronger than one gram of sugar or one gram of fructose, it's stronger. But we're eating so much less glutamate that it, it's not a major mechanism for obesity. Okay. And most of the umami foods we're eating are we're not eating enough to really drive the switch. Now, if you happen to be uh, like, a, a, you know, like fried shrimp, which I do, mm-hmm. I mean, I love fried shrimp. I don't know. I mean, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> shrimp contains a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So it's not the one shrimp or the two shrimp or the three shrimp. But when you have a bowl of shrimp, you probably are getting enough umami to activate this uh, pathway. And also, if you're a beer drinker, beer, even non-alcoholic beer contains this stuff. And it, and it's probably why there's a beer belly, why beer raises blood pressure, why beer raises triglycerides and causes fatty liver. It's through this very pathway. Yeah. So, um, so it's sort of disappointing. Uh, what, and we've always kind of known that the, the, other than sugar, beer is one of the most strongest way to, to make you overweight. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the, of the umami and some of the alcohol. And, you know, the, another thing is alcohol. Some alcohol gets converted to fructose in the body, too. So uh, it turns out that we have to be careful. I, if you get my book, I promise you, I lay out a way that you can. Um, yeah, I mean, right here. I do a balanced. You, you, there, there are solutions here. And, um, and, and, and you can still have a balanced meal and you can still eat some sugar here. You can still, but, um, but anyway, it's, uh, I think it's, it's the accumulation, right? It's a little bit like you don't eat one French fry and you eat the French fry with the salt and the ketchup. You don't eat one fried shrimp to your point. There's probably a dipping sauce on the side somewhere for that shrimp. You know, like we, we just, we're our own worst enemy. We're not eating just the one thing. It's the, it's the cumulative effect of, of all the things. And we were talking about this a little bit when it comes to red meat, because red meat is a very hot, ugly topic right now. You want to, you want to get a lot of people mad at you to start talking about red meat, either it's really good or it's really bad. And you're going to have all kinds of people coming at you. And I, I still believe, and I know that, that you talk about red meat being a source of umami in the book. And, but, you know, I think one of the things that is important to mention is mostly a lot of it is the processed meats that are that are yes, the the, umami. The, the, without a doubt, processed red meats are much worse uh, in terms of umami. Mm-hmm. Uh, they often have a lot more salt and sugar as well. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, if you compare red meat to white meat, um, there's more umami in red meat. There's more IMP and AMP. Same thing with shellfish. But again, you know, it's a matter of balance. If you have kidney disease, you definitely don't want to be eating a lot of red meat. Yeah, because uh, uh, animals, you can definitely make kidney disease worse by giving them animal proteins that are higher in umami than vegetable proteins. So um, but I recognize that there's a lot of positives to uh, to meat. And one of the best things about a paleo diet or carnivore diet is that you're reducing your carbs. 
Yeah. And so there's yeah. a lot, you know, that is a huge plus. Yeah. So let's get to these other topics, though, because I, I know we don't have, oh, well, no, we, we still have about 20 minutes left-ish. Um, <laughs> I know you have a hard stop. So let's talk about the relationship of, of all of this topic to cancer. Um, I think you, you have a fascinating part in the book talking about how the polio pathway gets activated in the heart in a heart attack, which dr- further drives the damage. So I don't know where you want to start there. Let's begin with cancer because it's a little bit easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so many, many years ago, it was recognized that, you know, the cancers, when they uh, spread, especially when they metastasize and when they form, they, they usually do not ha- have their own blood supply initially. And so when a tumor, when a tumor cell spreads through the body, what we call metastasis, it, it, it's in an environment where there's not a lot of oxygen initially. And then what it does is it actually stimulates its own blood vessels. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, then it can keep growing. But it lives in a low oxygen environment for the most part. Now, remember that um, this survival pathway developed to, to um, for animals that are, uh, you know, as to survive when there wasn't enough food around or energy, but oxygen is used to make energy too. And so if, if it was kind of to help you survive in a low energy state, uh, it wants to re- reduce your oxygen needs. And the way it did that, if you recall, is that the switch turns, turns down the mitochondria which use oxygen to make energy mm-hmm. and it turns on a process called glycolysis, an ancient system that makes small amounts of energy, but doesn't require oxygen. So uh, it turned out that many years ago is discovered that cancer cells pref- often live off this primitive energy mechanism where they, where they can live on, with, they don't need the oxygen to make their energy. They, they switch to this thing and it was, named after a guy named Warburg, Otto Warburg, call it the Warburg effect. So for years, since 1930, it's been known that cancer cells uh, prefer to live in a low, when they're living in this low oxygen environment, they actually live off glycolysis where they're um, trying to make energy without requiring much oxygen. So guess what their favorite fuel is? All these cancer cells, there's all these studies showing that they love fructose because mm-hmm. fructose helps them by reducing their, the oxygen needs. It helps them grow in this low oxygen environment. And so it's like their favorite fuel. And if you give, you know, tumor cells and culture, they, uh, they, they grow more uh, with their fed fructose. And we actually uh, gave them uric acid and did studies with uric acid and, and uh, they metastasize in the animal much faster if you raise the uric acid. Mm. And it's been known that cancers um, are commonly, a number of them are commonly associated with obesity uh, in which the switch is turned on, right? Yeah. And so breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, and colon cancer, liver cancer, these are the main ones that have been associated with obesity. And guess what? They're associated with a high uric acid. You can, uh, they're associated with sugar and with fructose. 
And there's even some groups that are um, taking animals and putting them on low sugar diets as a means to like slow cancer growth, especially like colon cancer in animals. So it's not going to be long before this is being investigated in people. Right. Well, there's already quite a movement of of people with cancer exploring a ketogenic diet. And in some cases, it's really helpful. But I have also, and I know personally someone who unfortunately has passed away since that even a keto diet wasn't able to help her. But my understanding is there are certain types of cancer that can actually even use ketones as a source of fuel. So it Probably. seems to vary between types of cancer. I think, I think we're moving away from the blanket statement, oh, you have cancer, get on a keto diet to learn more. Yeah. Well, some of these for sure, fructose is bad. Um, whether or not ketones are bad is, a, is another excellent question. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it is the way it works. This, this is probably the, why these cancers are associated with, um, you know, with, with obesity, for example. Now, the other thing that happened is that we realized that part of the survival response that is activated by fructose involves the stimulation of foraging. And foraging is is where you start looking for food, you're hungry, you go out into an area where you may not have been before. So there's a little exploratory behavior, a little bit of, um, you know, risk taking because you may go into an area where there's predators. You have to be brave. You have to be maybe a little aggressive in case you run into something. Um, And you have to move fast. And you can't spend much time deliberating on anything. If you're looking around, you got to just kind of go from one area to another and look real quickly. And uh, so uh, there's not so much attention to detail because you got to get through. Uh, And so it turns out that fructose has been shown in neural imaging you know, when you do imaging of the brain, yeah, you can, you can actually look for where things are, act, uh, blood flow increases, and blood flow doesn't, and you can tell what's being turned on and off. And it turns out that fructose tries to make the visual cortex stronger so you can see more, um, and it tries to decrease the willpower area so that you, you're... you're you're more likely to go into an area that you know may not be safe. It actually downplays the the area of recent memory. It doesn't want you to remember where the predators, I mean, they want you to know, of course, but it doesn't want you to know so much that you won't go into that area because uh, you, they, you've got to come back with some food. Mm. And so, so all these things get activated by fructose. Yeah. And now there's data that like fructose, levels are high in patients with Alzheimer's. It's high in patients with bipolar disease, uh, especially during, you know, with me, associated with manic episodes. And there's more and more data that this pathway is kind of in uh, playing a role in some of behavioral disorders and dementia and so forth. So it's really a very exciting area of research. What about in kids? Like, as you're describing this, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, small children. And you talked earlier how these pathways aren't necessarily activated in kids. But if we look at some of the diets that some of these children are are following, you know, they're getting sugar from right, left and center, including fruit juice and whatnot. Like in kids with, 
you know, with all these attention deficit disorders or behavioral yeah. issues in school, like this sounds a lot like yeah, that. No, it's very, very much involved. In, um, so it turns out that when you're born, these systems to make and, and absorb fructose are pretty low in your body. But if you um, expose a person to a lot of sugar early in life, um, they, they'll start absorbing and, and eventually that fructose is gonna is kick in and childhood obesity is a big issue. Sure. Um, and ADHD is actually associated a little bit with obesity, but it's particularly associated you know, with, it's been linked with sugar intake and most teachers and most parents have thought that it was linked. Now there's some people who pointed out that it's hard if you give sugar to someone, you can't always get that ADHD kind of symptom. Uh, and, but it turns out that the way this system works, and I had a, a couple papers on this, but, but the way it works is that um, the more sugar you're eating, the more you're turning the system on and the systems well, eventually your uric acid levels don't just go up with fructose, but they stay elevated. And mm -hmm. once they're, they're still elevated, you can have ADH symptoms even without eating sugar. Yeah. Um, and so the problem is, is that, you know, if you're going to do a study, you have to look at whether or not the uric acid levels are normal or high and whether or not they respond to the sugar. So some people are going to eat sugar, but their uric acid is not going to go up as much because they're not going to absorb as much sugar because they've not been exposed to as much and others are going to get sugar and they're going to absorb the whole thing and their uric acid is going to go up much faster. And so to, to actually study this, you have to understand the pathway and then <laughs> design it so that you're actually seeing if the switch is being triggered or not. Because yeah. if you're not triggering the switch much, you're not going to see it. Yeah. Um, and so, so anyway, so, um, uh, that when you actually look at children with ADHD and you do the imaging and everything, it's the same fingerprint as mm -hmm. what you see with sugar. It's the same fingerprint. Yeah. And it, you know, there are nice studies that have been done by Michael Gorin. I don't know if you've had him on your show. Um, he has a book called uh, Sugar Proof. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's a pediatric uh, sugar expert. And he's done these studies where he's given sugar adolescence and he can show that you know this this hyperactivity followed by a crash this is real yeah it's actually shown in people in well, kids so i i think yeah i think um you know we uh, we can learn a lot one of the fantastic things natalie i mean it's fantastic is when we found this pathway you know suddenly it can help explain so many different things it's like um that's why I talk about it as a treasure chest. And, um, and so I'm hoping that uh, as we learn about it, we learn how to fix things. We learn how to prevent, treat, reverse. And, and uh, you know, in the book, I talk about the tricks to reverse this. Because yeah. even if you've got the switch activated for a long time, there are ways you can reverse it. I, I think it's going to turn out to be a major mechanism, not just for these diseases, but aging mm -hmm. right now we're studying aging and when we block this pathway animals don't get aging changes in their kidney and they you know they don't get uh, they their blood pressure stays normal their whole life and they stay lean so i, I have the feeling this is um you know that, that fundamentally this is a major pathway i'm 
incredibly grateful that my research allowed us to stumble onto this. And I do believe that it's gonna, as we learn how to block it, we're gonna knock out a lot of big diseases. Yeah, no, this is, it's really, really exciting. So I think, you know, I was, and it's funny, I was, I was gonna ask you about once the switch has been switched on, what does it take to switch it off? And I gathered that's at the end of, that's the last chapter of the book that I didn't actually get to, but is there, so as we close, maybe we yeah. could leave the audience with this, a little bit of hope and a couple of strategies. <laughs> so for, yeah, so there's two, two things to think about. One is there's this switch that we turn on. It isn't just from sugar, it's from eating these other foods too. And we turn on this switch that helps put all this fat on us, make us diabetic and all these things. And if we stop the switch, we can reverse back to normal fairly easily, at least in the early part. But once you've been obese for a long time, like mm-hmm. five, 10 years, it isn't enough just to, to block the switch. You actually have to stimulate the repair of those energy factors. Because what happens is you're hitting them with this thing, oxidative stress. Think of it like a hammer. Yeah. And you're hitting it every day. Okay. And, and, you know, it takes a long time to knock it down. But once you start knocking it down, then if you take away the hammer, you're still stuck with uh, not enough mitochondria to make the ATP we need to give us the energy we, we had in our youth. And so at that point, um, we're still walking slowly. We go on a diet, we lose the weight, and the weight comes right back up when we, you know, when we break, we can't maintain it. There's too much of a drive to take us back to that high weight. And so the question is, how can we get to the point where we can eat what we, you know, we can eat what we want. We don't have to eat 400 calories a day to try to keep our weight down. Mm-hmm. We can eat a regular diet and we, and the trick is we have to restore the mitochondria. We have to restore the mitochondria. Interesting. And that's the second half. And there are ways to do it. There are actually ways to do it. There is no one who can't get back a lot more energy. Um, and, and it's going to give you back youth and it's going to, and, and it's going to give you um, vulnerable. It's going to make you less likely to develop cancer I mean, it, it's going to have a lot of benefits. And, and I, it's not that it's all been proven, but the data strongly suggests it. I mean, I'm a scientist. Some of this has to be proven, but the data really supports it. And I talk about it. And the number one way to restore the mitochondria, there's like multiple ways. But one of the best ways is with what we call zone two exercise. Nice. And what that means is you get on a, uh, a stationary bike or you a bicycle or you walk fast and you just kind of force yourself to walk to the point where it, it's just a little bit difficult to talk. You can still talk, but it's a little difficult. That's when you're in the zone. And for some people, it's going to start off with, you know, you're still walking slow, mm-hmm. but for you, you're doing, you're in the place where you want to be because you want to be at the stage where you just are having a little trouble talking. And that's the stage you want to be in. And then you have to, bad news, you have to, 
exercise probably at least 40 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes to really get the benefit. If you just do five minutes, it's, it's going to give you a tiny bit of benefit, but it's not what you really want. What you want to do is to do this like three times a week and to do like 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. And what will happen is these mitochondrial start coming back. And when it does, it's going to be easier to keep the weight off. You're going to feel better. You're going to have more energy. You're going to sleep better. Um, and everything's going to be good, but you're still going to have to avoid activating the switch or you're just going to be sure. bring back the mitochondria and then you hit it with a hammer again. So you don't want to, you don't want to do that. But anyway, it is, I think anyone can really gain a lot of benefit by, um, you know, by following some of these basic rules. Um, you know, I mean, if you have been diabetic for a long time and you're on dialysis and it will be a harder go, but you can still gain, you can still get benefit. There's benefit for everybody. Yeah. And it even brings back muscles. So um, we have some data in animals that, um, you know, that we, we tend to waste away as we get older, our muscle gets less and less and you, you probably can get your muscles back by doing this. Um, and it's, it's not the calories you burn from exercise. It's not, um, it's not just the flexibility and all those things. Those are all great, okay? But it's, it's the stimulation of those energy factories. That's what counts. That's what, how the brain works. That's how, how we want to stay healthy is to keep our energy factories good. Yeah. Well, it all comes down to the mitochondria so often, and there's lots of other ways to help with mitochondria. You know, there's red light, near infrared light therapy. There's, there's, we talk about mitochondria a lot. Um, um, and I think, but I think, you know, to your point, I think the only question that somebody might be wondering, and I'm staring at my clock here just to make sure I don't take you over, but you know, does that 40 minutes have to be continuous or can they do 15 minutes, three times a day? Do you think? I, I personally think you can do the 50 minutes three times a day. Um, I, I do not absolutely know. Yeah. There's a person who's an expert on this who you may want to invite to your show, Inigo Samalan. He's kind of the international expert on this. Yeah. And, um, and he also was the coach for the Tour de France winner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, so, uh, um, and, and he, he, he understands how to optimize yeah. Well, I, I'm just, you I, know what, I, I'm I thinking. Reach out to him. Yeah, I'm also, I'm thinking about someone who's very overweight, who hasn't exercised in years and years and years. To them, that 40 minutes can seem like an insurmountable mountain, whereas that those three or four 10 minute blocks yes. is more achievable. Plus, you that. after a meal, it lowers your postprandial glucose. It, you know, yeah, I, I, I honestly believe that three 10 minutes or four 10 minutes uh, would be just as good. Mm-hmm. I, I really believe that. I do. I know that for a fact. No, yeah. um, but I, I, uh, I, can't, I can't tell you definitive, but I totally in agreement with you. And uh, to be honest, I, I tend to do uh, I like to to do it in like 15 minute blocks. Sure. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know that you have to fly. So why don't, and I mean, there's so much more we could talk about guys. There was so much in this book that, it, that I wanted to dig into and we only have so much time. So Dr. Johnson, why don't you tell people where they can learn more, where they can find your book, which is fantastic. And it's a really easy book to read. I mean, I think you've made it very accessible for people, which. 
Thank you very much. I have great editors helping me. So the book is from Ben Bella Publishers, uh, but you can find it at almost any bookstore. It's called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. I've got it right here. And, um, and so it's, uh, uh, I also have a website, drrichardjohnson.com. And I have lots of little pearls on that website. I have stories that are not in my book. So that's a place where you can kind of learn more about me. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, you know, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, uh, all the bookstores, uh, Amazon. So you can find it. Um, and I appreciate your interest in it. If you do see it and you read it and you, you want to write a review about it, please do. Uh, preferably a good one. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the reviews. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if you get really get a major question, you can email me. Um, I, have, I have a lot of people finding me either through the Ben Bella. Uh, they have a, a site there where you can email. Uh, some of you may email me by looking me up in my academic papers. I, I am a prolific uh, writer. Well, I, I shouldn't say prolific, but I write a lot of papers. And so um, that's it. And no doubt through the website. So thank you again so much for your time and for being here today. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answered a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.